Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to Deep Orbit Studio Presents. I am your host, Darren Roebuck, and with me today is one of my dearest friends from a long time back, uh, a very prolific author, and one of the most interesting people that I know, uh, an author by the name of Robert W. Williams that I know as Bobby, and most people know him that way, uh, and he's uh, with me from upstate New York. Hey, Bobby, how's it going? Good, Darren. How you been? Oh, been great. Been great. So, you know, I've known you when you lived here in Boulder, and that was a good 10 years or so, and you were back here for a little while in 2009, but uh, since then you've been living uh, back east. Uh, what have you been up to? Well, I've been uh, working on a lot of new book projects uh, ever since the last time you saw me, went shortly after my first novel came out. I actually have my... Uh, 17th and 18th novels coming out over the course of the next month. Wow. 17, yeah, 18 novels. Uh, so tell me, what are what are all these about? Well, the latest three, one came out this month. It's called The uh, Fortune Cookie Writer. It's part of a series to which the uh, two that are about to come out also belong. Uh, it's called the Peter Durant Series. And each book uh, is a standalone, independent aspect of the series with a beginning and an end. And an end. But uh, the characters are uh, concurrent, and uh, there's a continuous plot line. Uh, they're basically uh, written in the Mitch Album style of large font, uh, short, relatively short novel, 140 pages, uh, with a point and end, uh, kind of an uplifting message. First one's about uh, kind of uh, letting go of the past, uh, getting over negativity. Uh, you know, in the same sense that uh, Mitch Album and a lot of other writers kind of give you a life lesson based upon what something they went through. That's what I'm doing with the Peter Durant series, and hopefully give you a chance to laugh out loud while you're reading each book. I was going to say, I read the first one, and man, was I ever laughing out loud. I mean, really hysterical stuff there. Uh, so does some of this stuff stem from real life, or would you call it pure fiction? Oh, it all stems from real life. They're all, uh, I wouldn't say that the uh, situations in the stories are uh, reflective of my situations, but that the... Uh, the intensity, uh, the depth of my experiences are portrayed within these fictional scenarios, as well as the, uh, the life lessons learned and uh, the changes that occur from going through something. Um, it's all in there. It's just not factual, a factual representative representation in my life. Right on. So um, with all these books out, uh, are you enjoying the spoils of success? Uh, no, there's no spoils of success yet, I wish. Um, I don't know if you recall, but back in 2009 when my first novel was coming out, I actually had a book deal on the table uh, for two books, and it turned out that uh, this couple, this, uh, this company was a complete scam. Uh, they sent me a contract that basically said they would own everything that I'd written up until the point of signing the contract, and that their hourly rates were like 600 bucks a piece. And uh, there was no way that I would ever see a penny publishing with this company the way they had it structured. And my lawyer, who you know, and I won't name, uh, basically said, 
you know, you tell them, call them up and tell them to go fuck themselves. And then if you want, tell them I said it. And, uh, what do you call it? Uh, basically I learned a big lesson is, uh, any company that won't present you with a contract in the initial courting stage, once they express interest is a scam. And, uh, basically don't ever be desperate enough to sign something that's not going to benefit you in the end. So I guess I could write a story about that. But I'll share that with any writer to be, you know, I was going to say that's, that's great, great advice for anybody that's in, uh, in any type of publishing or royalty oriented field, whether it's uh, music or, uh, art or, uh, uh, you know, you mean visual art, of course, and, uh, or, uh, or literature, um, yeah, you gotta watch out for the scammers because there's more of them than there are the real deal. But the thing about the real deal is that uh, you know it right away. You know they show up with the money, they show up with the contracts, they show up saying, "Yeah, this is how it's gonna go," and they don't ask for any money from you. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so aside from the Peter Durant series, what, what do you have going on now? Well, my biggest thing is uh, my Wonder World series, which I know you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been working on that since 96. I uh, got the seventh book in the series out last August, and uh, let's see. It's, uh, it's getting a lot of attention. Uh, I did a major rewrite after uh, Simon & Schuster, one of their executive editors, took a look at it and gave me a ton of good advice. But now I'm back at square one with them. I have to go through the entire process again to get it looked at by another editor. Uh, Penguin Random House. They're looking at Wonderworld right now, and so is a representative from Nickelodeon. So I have a lot of high hopes for that series. It's a juvenile series, as you know, but I'll say it for the audience. Uh, written for the you know 9 to 15 uh, age group. Uh, it's about a group of kids that discover a planet on the other side of the sun, that's kind of like Earth, but with a completely different evolutionary course for plants and animals, and uh, how these kids spend time there and explore ancient pyramidic ruins and uh, all the terrain, and uh, they discover new species of animals and name them, as well as plants. Uh, they snorkel in alien tide pools and climb alien mountains discovered treasure and fossils and crystals and uh, a race of alien walking stick beings that they befriend, as well as find many uh, enemies in the animal kingdom that would want to uh, kill and eat them, and they have to defend themselves against these foes. Super cool. Well, you know, the the Deep Orbit Studio audience I don't think knows yet, but um, uh, Bobby and I collaborated on that, and I did the uh, the audiobook versions of these books, so I got to read them and get to know them in depth, and man, are they exciting. So great. But anyway, we'll learn a little bit more about what happens in Wonder World uh, right after we listen to this tune from Robinson Treacher uh, that you're listening to Deep Orbit Studio Presents. Next, we chose to spotlight raspy voice country soul singer-songwriter Robinson Treacher. Steadily building his fan base crossing genres, Robinson was recently nominated for a CMT Country Music People's Choice Award. Hailing from my hometown of New York City, here's Robinson Treacher breaking it down on I Got a Good Mind to Keep You. 
got a book bag, I ain't got no books. I got a mirror, but I sure ain't got them looks. Most things I suppose away, but I got a good mind to keep you if you stay. I got a book bag, but I ain't got no hat. Even got a necktie, nothing to go with that. I shall throw away, but I got a good mind to keep you if you stay. Oh, oh, my mind, yeah. Find myself believing that so much more. Four walls and a ceiling and a bed at night. I got a shoelace. Got much bigger, but I sure do got them loose. Most things I should throw away, but I got a good mind to keep you where you stay. I Got a Good Mind to Keep You by Robinson Treacher here on Deep Orbit Studio Presents. And I'm talking with Robert W. Williams, uh, a fantastic author and artist who uh, I've known here in Boulder for a long time, who's now living on the East Coast and his very, very, uh, how do I say, uh, rabidly uh, going after his uh, writing career right now. And we've been talking about a series that he wrote called Wonder World. It's a seven-part series uh, geared towards preteens, but it's sort of in the same way that Harry Potter's geared toward preteens that, you know, as an adult reading it, you don't feel talked down to at all in it. As a matter of fact, it's just exciting as anything. Um, And, you know, Bobby, I know you 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 created a world, uh, a very rich, vibrant, and detailed world. but beyond that, there's more things that you're trying to convey. Uh, now, what was sort of the the philosophical undertone of, of Wonder World for you? Well, I'd say the number one thing that I was trying to convey was uh, the necessity to develop a love for nature and the sciences. If you're a human being living on this planet, well, for one, you should know as much as you can about biology and human biology everything that we're a part of, uh, 
And I also feel maybe that uh, with all the technology today, a lot of people aren't participating in the natural world as much as they should to be healthy. So I try to inspire exploration and outdoor adventure, to, you know, especially the kids that have grown up in city areas where they can't get into this stuff. Uh, they can at least vicariously develop an interest. And then it goes, it's tiered. There's the level of, uh, you know, trying to inspire children to study the sciences, whether they want to become a doctor or an anthropologist or an archaeologist. It all begins with a love for the sciences. Uh, if you want to be a psychologist or a doctor or a chiropractor, you have to study biology and you have to study typically chemistry and there are a lot of other sciences. And uh, I say, you know, in an era of video games and a lot of other wasteful mental activities, in my opinion, uh, why not start the kids off a little younger with the sciences here? Yeah, indeed. You know, uh, I was very fortunate in uh, my growing up that my grandmother was involved with the Museum of Science and Industry in uh, Los Angeles. And as a result of her being involved in that, uh, I had a free pass to uh, the museum as well as uh, its summer school classes. So from being uh, you know, maybe about seven years old, I spent a lot of my summers there. And I tell you, it really had a huge impact on how I turned out as an adult as well as uh, really fostering um, a really great uh, sort of lust for seeking new knowledge and learning new things. Uh, I can't... Um, you know, support you enough in, in your endeavors to get kids and parents to influence their kids to learn about uh, the earth sciences at a young age. Um, very Super important. And what a fun way to do it through the vehicle of your book series. Well, thank you. Yeah. Try my best. <laughs> I, uh, I have a lot of nieces and nephews, and I took a lot, I drew from a lot of my experiences with them. You know, I used to take them out collecting crayfish and catching turtles and everything back when I was living in Pennsylvania. And just the thrill and uh, the change in their demeanor and uh, their collective moods when they would uh, get out of the house and get, you know, ankle or knee deep in the water and run around screaming, look what I caught, look what I caught, or look what I found, or picking up an arrowhead or some other artifact. And just that thrill and, you know... Uh, that's priceless material. So I try to offer that within a fictional setting because whereas no kid, no matter how hard they try, they're never going to screw around with werewolves and vampires. They're never going to go to wizard school or have a magic wand or a, a broom they could ride on. But a child that goes on an adventure where they could pick up fossils and crystals and arrowheads and geodes, albeit on an alien setting, and then close the book and go out with a metal detector and dig up stuff, even in their own front row backyard. Uh, they can go a short ways quite often from their home and find fossils and minerals and crystals. Uh, well, everything I read about in the book is an opportunity for the child to open the door to a fun reality and a, uh, an entertaining and uh, educational reality that isn't a great leap, and it's not unattainable, which is my most important point. Uh, it's not fiction that's unattainable. 
Right, it's all right outside. Geology's everywhere. Can't escape it. Physics is everywhere. You can't escape it. And it's wonderful that you're able to illustrate it in such a, a, a cool and fun way that kids can read this stuff and create these images in their minds. And then when they walk outside, they realize it's not just in their mind. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that I treasure within myself, because I was a young boy once and ran around the yard pretending to be fighting aliens and running away from Bigfoot or fighting other kinds of monsters and exploring places that really didn't exist anywhere else aside from our imagination or a television show that we were watching at the time. But I treasure the thought of knowing that there could be millions of children running around their yard pretending to do the things that the characters in my books do and then actually turn to their parents and say, you know, could we go on a camping trip and see a bunch of different animals that we'd never see on our block? Uh, could we go to a fossil place and dig up real fossils? Could we go to the beach with a metal detector or a farm and look for old artifacts? Like, it, it thrills me to think that I could be the inspiration for families to go and do something that's relatively inexpensive that they've never participated in before and find that thrill of becoming a real-life treasure hunter. I mean, what these kids do in this book is incredible. I mean, they're finding glass statues and crystals and all kinds of things made out of gold and silver and gems inside these pyramid museums and ancient cities built underground and in shipwrecks and stuff. But you and your family can go out and rent or buy a metal detector and find awesome stuff. I see it all the time with friends online that post pictures of what their kids dig up. You, know? uh, you can go with your family and find incredible fossils. Now, maybe you're not going to find a dinosaur bone at the beginning, at least, but you find shells and trilobites and all sorts of things that are incredible to take home and keep and learn about. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it for me. That's really cool, Bobby. I love what you're doing there with trying to influence something that's just so real and so important for people, uh, and especially young people, to get involved in. Uh, but we're going to jump to another tune now. Uh, here's a little, uh, here's a little bit of Jimmy Cliff on Deep Orbit Studio.
see clearly now. I love that song. That's a good good suggestion, Bobby. So, Wonderworld. Gonna keep sticking with it for a little bit because it's just so rich and it's just so deep and detailed and involved. And not only is it just a vibrant and rich world that you've created uh, that these characters uh, exist in, but there's also some social commentary uh, that's really not so much for the kids. It's more like for the grownups in there. Um, And it's something that I thought was really important and I really resonated with it. I loved that somebody actually had the guts to put it into something that was geared towards young people. Um, What do you have to say about about that? What what, what influenced you to put in some of this uh, social commentary? Well, I'd have to say it comes from uh, my studies of uh, earthbound cultures. Uh, it has nothing to do with an alien, uh, anything I'm envisioning in the future. Uh, it comes from the past, like studying the, the Olmecs and the Inca and the Maya, the Toltecs, the ancient Egyptians, Sumerians, all these ancient cultures uh, all over the world that uh, have risen to great heights of civilization, uh, only to uh, fall apart or dissipate or be destroyed or to destroy themselves. I basically took a lot of what I've read through history, and I said, well, if I was going to portray an extinct, defunct alien society, a culture that had once existed all in the world, but does not exist anymore, and these children find all the ancient ruins, like, what could they learn from history so that history doesn't repeat itself. What can they learn? Well, why throw all that wisdom away? So uh, see what they can garner through their explorations. And they do. They learn a lot. They see mistakes that these alien cultures made and the problems that have led to. And basically, through the characters' interaction with their environment and with each other, I pose certain questions, you know, like... Uh, beginning with, when they get there, they have to feed themselves and... They have five teenagers, and they have to figure out how to dispose of their own human waste. They have to figure out how they're going to grow food. And uh, the, idea, the ideas of composting come up, and health safety, and survival, and purification of water. And then from that, uh, I kind of expand it into look at the world around you. Understand how your water and sewer work. Understand where your electricity comes from, understand where your food comes from and how it's produced. Uh, And through discussing what the children have to grow there to have a balanced, healthy diet in order to survive, kind of brings the idea of nutrition into the story. So woven through the fabric of the plot lines, these children face uh, these realistic challenges that open up the door for a short a brief introduction to each of these concepts. And I present them to the children, I think, to the minds of the children, with the idea of, you think it might be easy to do this stuff, but this is what you really have to be dealing with. And you should think about all this stuff uh, to kind of present a little challenge to the adults who read it and say, you know, have you thought about your foods and GMOs and uh, the amount of pesticides and herbicides and fungicides are being put on the food that you're eating and feeding to your children at the time when everybody's trying to figure out where all of these ailments that never existed before are popping up 
in such abundance. You know, it's, I feel sometimes that I walk around and people don't even know what GMO stands for, and that horrifies me. Uh, and I guess I go into greater things, like these five kids, a greater philosophical uh, notions uh, that are less part of the physical world and more part of the uh, psychological and uh, cerebral world. Uh, the idea is that you have five kids with no governing body and no parents over them. You know, how are they going to work things out? <laughs> how are they going to survive the pressures of trying to survive and get along and work as a team and share ideas? And through these experiences and through their interactions with the remnants of this alien culture, they are posed with the questions of, wow, you know, why do people commit crimes? What are the pressures, whether they be inborn biochemical pressures or they be social pressures that cause a person to want to go out and rob a bank at gunpoint, you know, and the other crimes that people commit. And then it goes into even what I might consider deeper philosophical exploration of why a culture does the things they do. You know, uh, I find it um, very strange that uh, we just repeat the same holidays each year. Uh, they're pretty much all situated on astronomical points within our earthly seasonal cycles, our celestial cycles and seasonal cycles. And yet, they're just the same holidays every year, it seems to me. Like, that's a weird thing to do. I would make, personally, if I ran things, I'd make a new holiday on all of these points, and I'd change it up. Instead of us all going, oh, God, we've got to go through that again. Or, oh, I really look forward to doing the same thing again this year. And then you have the people that, you know, are very excited about certain holidays. But it seems a little mundane to me. But it kind of asks you the question, why? You know, would you plan to wear the same clothes on the same date every week? Or every month, like, uh, do you eat the same food every Friday and then the same food every Thursday? Um, I, I think it's, other than the frequency of uh, paying our bills and having weekends off and whatnot, there are very few things that we choose to constrain within the confines of a repetitive cycle. So I, I, I say, let's look at that. So the kids explore these civilizations and they say, uh, you know, randomly on each continent, some are interconnected and whatnot. But uh, they look at what they did. They say, why do they do these things? Uh, in the same way that our anthropologists and archaeologists do that today. Uh, it's a necessary trait to be that type of scientist, to think that way. Uh, not just a, you know, a waste of mental energy to do this. You actually have to apply that if you were to become a scientist. That means method of thinking. So I have the kids do it, and uh, it goes deeper and deeper into why Why did they use the construction materials that they used, and how did they do it? Uh, how did they build these pyramids? You know, let's, yeah, strangely enough, they're on an alien world, so aliens really did build those pyramids. But it challenges them to think, well, if we were going to build permanent structures out of stone or whatever other material was available, how would we do it? So it's kind of... Uh, urges the reader to think about these things while being entertained wildly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I get into all of it. You know, 
It, it's really great, Bobby. And I love that you had put all this stuff together and really it, you bring the full circle of all the sciences together and all the critical thinking aspects uh, together and get kids really realizing that it's not just homework. It's fun and it's, and it's your life. Um, I can't say enough about how much I've enjoyed the Wonder World series, and I really loved being able to read it and play all the parts. But more importantly, in doing all of that and reading it and rereading it and rereading it and listening to it back, um, I just never got tired of it. And I just kept applauding you for the, the concepts you were bringing up. It's just important, and you just don't see people doing it these days. So for those of you out there that want to uh, check out more of this, you can find... Uh, Wonder World by Robert W. Williams on Amazon, uh, and uh, there's seven volumes. Uh, you can also find the audiobooks on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes, uh, and it's just get into it. Get the first one, and you will wind up reading them all uh, or listening to them uh, because it's just that cool. Um, so, Bobby, we're going to get into the other stuff that you've been doing here uh, right after this, but... Uh, Right now, let's listen to a little bit of Ray LaMontagne. This is Jolene on Deep Orbit Studio Presents. Cocaine flame in my bloodstream Sold my coat when I hit Spokane Bought myself a hard pack of cigarettes In the early morning rain Lately my hands, they don't feel like mine My eyes been stung with dust and blinds Held you in my arms one time Lost you just the same Jolene It's too late I found myself face down in the ditch Oozing my hair, blood on my lips A picture of you holding a picture of me In the pocket of my blue jeans I still don't know what love me Still don't know what love means Jolie La 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 Since I've seen your face I felt a part of this human race I've been living out of this hair suitcase For way too long Man needs something he can hold on to Nine pound hammer or a woman like you Either one of them things will Jolene 
Back here on Deep Orbit Studio Presents, uh, you just listened to Ray LaMontagne with a song called Jolene, and we're talking with Robert W. Williams, uh, an author. Uh, so you just released your 18th novel. Uh, we've been talking about his Wonderworld series, which is an amazing uh, series for preteens. Uh, but I know that your work reaches far beyond uh, stuff that's just geared for kids. Um Tell us about some of the stuff you've done that's more, um, you know, for the grown-ups. All right. Well, I guess I'll start with uh, Calling Fate to Sunrise, because I was just talking about somebody that about that uh, online today. It's a story about a, a guy who's uh, is apparently his wife's ghost returns to him a year after she dies. He can't tell if he's got Alzheimer's disease and he's imagining all or she's really there. And it's this very heart-wrenching communique between them that revolves around the mistakes they made in their marriage and how valuable it is for them to make this connection and resolution yet underlying this entire experience throughout the book, this ghost story, is that he's got to trust his heart, not his mind, because he doesn't know if it's really happening. If he just is going senile, or if she really returned to him from the dead. And it's a challenge to the reader the whole time they're reading it to decide for themselves what they believe is really going on. And, uh, and I have another book, uh, Autumn, which is about a, uh, a married woman and a single man and the emotional, uh, Air that goes on between them and how, you know, uh, married people have that uh, conflict of needing uh, all kinds of friends and encounters in their life and having to walk the line of keeping them pure and uh, non-disruptive to their relationships and uh, how we get what we need from life without hurting anybody else. Uh, and it's also a story about a person getting cancer when they realize they only have a couple of months to live, you know, do you throw it all out the window and just do whatever you want? Or do you remain true to what you believe are your values and yourself? Uh, a very challenging read, and it's a tearjerker from what people have read it told me. Uh, and then, 
you know, that's my serious dramatic adult fiction. Uh, primarily, uh, women purchase those two, and I'm happy about that. I like their responses. I only get a few male readers on those. Uh, and what was the name of that one again? Oh, uh, there. Calling Faith a Sunrise, which is the ghost story. Mm-hmm. And then Autumn, which is a dramatic life fiction about uh, choices we make in relationships. All right. And then I'd say, uh, what's that? Oh, go, go, go on. A, what were you saying? Oh, I was going to say, uh, I kind of take a leap into uh, science fiction outside of the dramatic fiction uh, for adults, unless it's my comedy. I have my 101 Bar Napkin series, which you're familiar about, familiar with. Uh, it's a lot of comedy on the side, but uh, my main material is. Uh, very dramatic, thrilling science fiction. Uh, I like to compare myself to a combination of like Michael Crichton and Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, a lot of futuristic stuff, and one of my novels, Anti-Gravity, it's about the discovery of anti-gravity and the potential for time travel and space travel and energy production. Uh, kind of uh, mingles into a love story. Um, Song of the Seventh Angel, an apocalyptic sci-fi thriller about the end of the world, uh, in which I basically took the book of Revelations from the Bible and tried to explain everything that they predict in a scientific fashion and have it occur, where we understand exactly what's going on, but it's still the end. Um, But it's not ghostly or spiritual, it's actually realistic things that were described a long time ago in a poetic fashion. And then I've got Memories of Emin Eden, which is one of my favorite products. And uh, it's about uh, aliens who visit the Earth and try to bring their science into our culture and how wacky an interaction like that could be. Uh, it's just one man and one woman kind of against the Earthling world, but all for the Earthling world. And they're just trying to help out. And you can imagine... Uh, as difficult it is to try to be an activist in any way in this world, uh, regarding GMO or Keystone XL pipeline or uh, any of these things that we feel might be a threat, to try to stand up for it is a, a lot of work off. You've got to do your research. Well, imagine being part of a couple that come to Earth from another dimension or another planet, and they have all the answers to what we want to accomplish, but maybe money and politics don't want to hear that. Or maybe people are too reluctant to want to accept change. Like, they might beg every day, I wish there was no pollution. But if you told them what they actually had to do to make that occur, they might say, oh, no, 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 I'd rather just throw my plastic out every day. I don't want to have to do anything. So it's kind of semi-comical, but very serious and intense adventure about a man and a woman coming to the planet Earth and just what they face to try to get things done. And they do it. That's the best part. It's a happy end. Uh, but it's following them through this course uh, that might kind of inspire people to think of new ways to accomplish their goals here uh, on Earth if they want to get some things done, possibly against the grain. And uh, it also provides a lot of new ideas that you might not be thinking of that could solve some of our problems here. That's awesome. So, Bobby, 
I, I got to ask you this, uh, and I know there's probably no easy answer, but of all the things that you've written, of all the 18 different novels that you've put out up till now, do you have a favorite? Oh, uh, I like Anti-Gravity and Memories of Emin Eden, Neck and Neck. Uh, I think I, I, if I had to choose between the two, it would be Anti-Gravity. And that's primarily because uh, I did a complete revision, and now I'm extremely happy with the book. So the second edition is out as of last year. And... Uh, I spent 10 years reading everything that Einstein ever published and a lot of what other people wrote about him and his work in order to write the book. And then it took me two years to write it after those 10 years. And uh, if you're interested at all in interplanetary exploration or uh, the future of energy or how to enter the process of thinking that leads to solutions. I go through this whole thing where this college professor describes three-dimensional thinking, which I personally believe is necessary because you need a lot of linear, uh, two-dimensional uh, thinkers that uh, their, their method of thinking, methodology, don't lead to results. There are the people that are still going to be standing in the bar telling everybody how they're going to invent something 10 years after the first time you heard it. Because that type of thinking never gets you anywhere except to that place where you could be a good conversationalist or you could orate about what you would hope to do one day. It takes that leap from two-dimensional thinking to three-dimensional thinking, which is, of course, completely defined in the book by this college professor character, um, to get where you want to get. And it's not necessarily something I made up. It's just a name I gave to what I derive from reading about success stories and how people have accomplished great feats, sometimes against all odds on this planet. It's that thinking. It's a consensus of all of these success stories put together. Um, I inject into my story because it's how these people think to develop anti-gravity. So it's integral to the story, but it's a plus that instead of reading somebody's book on how they achieved their goals, through this fictional medium, you're getting, like, the 101 and 102 class on three-dimensional thinking. And when you do it along with the characters, it's better than hearing somebody's story, because you're actually doing the thinking. You're part of it. So you're incorporating little bits of critical thinking exercises along with uh, the narrative. Yes, and it, the book couldn't be written without it. Unless you follow these scientists, through their experience, in the same way that in Jurassic Park, what would Jurassic Park have been if Michael Crichton did not tell you about the amber in which they found the DNA of the dinosaurs and a mosquito? And what would Jurassic Park have been as a movie if they didn't take you through the dinosaur uh, cloning and incubation room? If they didn't take you on that little Disney ride through that? If they didn't show you, hey, this is how we made these dinosaurs, he walks you through that biological and critical thinking process, shows you the challenges they were up against, and shows you the conclusions they drew to lead to success. 
thing in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah, so that you are prepared to suspend disbelief completely and accept his creatures in that film. I do the same thing in anti-gravity. How am I going to get you to accept anti-gravity unless I walk you through the do's and don'ts, the failures and the successes that all lead to them actually accomplishing this goal? I don't want to fool you with bullshit. I spent 10 years studying Einstein in order to define this and describe it. So really, you're going to walk through something and you're getting led towards something that possibly can be done within our lifetimes, if not in the next generation. In the same way that it's not 100% real, that it will ever happen. But it's pretty damn close that we're going to see a live mastodon in our lifetimes, in the next decade, a baby mastodon being born of an elephant, an African elephant. Uh, we're going to see DNA extracted from things that we find from the past that could be reintroduced. Uh, you might be bringing kids to a zoo to see a woolly mammoth or a mastodon. I'm sorry. Um, well, uh, dinosaurs. I don't know if we'll ever see those, but it's quite possible. The door is still open. Nobody's saying it's 100% closed. And with anti-gravity, I mean, in the 1950s, most people, if you told them you could make a thing called a solar panel, they'd tell you you were nuts, right? The next thing you know, we're landing on the moon, and they're telling you about solar panels. And in the 1970s, back when it was you know, a little more difficult to use solar because of the cost involved and the lack of support, uh, people were starting to use it. And now... Solar is no different than trying to decide if you want to buy uh, one type of roof shingle or the other for your house. I mean, it's a no-brainer to have solar. So uh, anti-gravity, woolly mammoths, mastodon, uh, near-distant future. That's awesome. Well, you know what, Bobby? Uh, We're going to jump to another tune here. Uh, Here's a song called Possession by Sarah McLaughlin, and you're listening to uh, Robert W. Williams on the Deep Orbit Studio Presents podcast.
Right, that was Sarah McLaughlin with Possession, and this is Deep Orbit Studio. We're talking with author Robert W. Williams. Uh, so, Bobby, um, I know that you have lived in a variety of really different places. You grew up in New York. You uh, lived here in Boulder, Colorado. You lived in Hawaii, central Pennsylvania. Now you're in upstate New York. How have all of these rather radically different environments uh, influenced you uh, in your writing career? Well, I'd say the culture shock uh, in interacting with people in different areas uh, was the most impactful thing. It was coming to the realization that uh, wherever you go, things are different and other things are still the same. So basically, you can kind of get a good measure for what is uh, basic human nature. But yet, it opens the doors to seeing the possibilities of what we are not confined to, what we're not limited to. Now, I'm not saying that you can't break the bounds of certain aspects of uh, human nature, but it showed me, to my delight, that having grown up on Long Island, uh, you can go to a place like Boulder and find that people are behaving in a totally different way towards each other, and that it works. Whereas you'd grow up in one place and they'd call you a name for behaving in a certain way. You go to another place and it's normal. Uh, or the opposite is true. Like, I'll tell you a brief story. When I moved to Boulder, a bunch of friends took me down to Denver. And we were walking down the street at like 10 o'clock at night from one bar to the next. And every alley we put, walked past, I looked down real quick. And they all laughed at me and they're like, what is wrong with you? You're, like a, you're paranoid or something. Like you, you, you walk through the city in a strange way. And I was like, well, aren't there muggers in these alleys? And they would be like, what are you talking about? I'd be like, well, in New York, you're raised that there's usually people standing on the inside walls of the alley. And if you walk by and don't make eye contact with them, they know you didn't see them, so they'll pick your pocket. It's ubiquitous where I grew up. Like, it's everywhere. There's no alley unless it's pouring rain out, but there isn't somebody standing there. And now, of course, I'm talking about back in the 1970s and 80s. I don't know what it's like, you know, necessarily now in these areas because I haven't lived in a while since uh, 1990. But it was a, real, a realistic aspect of my experiences in life that people in Denver and Boulder could not relate to it at all. I mean, I lived in Boulder uh, for nine years and didn't have a key to any one of my places that if I did have one, I didn't carry it with me because we left the doors open all the time and unlocked. You know. And a person on Long Island would look at that kind of behavior as you need mental help, you need to be evaluated because anybody who would leave their front door locked, there's something wrong with you. Like, you really have to have a, a disorder or something or... Uh, a distortion in your thinking, at least, to think that that was even a realistic choice. So, you know, and then, you know, moving to Hawaii and people living uh, their lives in a way that would be incomprehensible to me in, say, either Boulder or Long Island. Like, you call up the plumber and say you got something broken, and they say, yeah, but I'll be there. But if the surf is up, you won't see them for three days, and they don't feel... I need to call you and tell you that because everybody on the island is behaving like that. And they call it Hawaii time. So basically, all in all, traveling around, 
ties to society and human nature and uh, the potential possibilities. And I like to write about that. Like, uh, you know, when people think that the idea of a free college education is something that sounds completely alien to them, to me, ethics should be allowed to reproduce unless you have at least your BS in a science. And I'm not talking about a BA either. I'm talking about a bachelor's degree in science. It doesn't mean you have to get A's or B's, but you have to be walked through that stuff and make an attempt because I talk to people uh, in my travels that I just basically look at and go, you know, how could you not know these basic things about your interaction, your interaction with your, your environment or how things work? Like, how could you function? But, you know, society is set up that there's not a lot people need, so they look at it like, why should I put the effort in? I'll go back to eating Doritos and playing video games. You know, uh, so I look at free education as something that almost should be a necessity. And uh, a lot of people would say, you don't get something special unless you pay for it, you know. Or they'll say, you know, free education, who wants that? You know, don't you have free hamburgers? Like, that's what they for. So it showed me that, you know, uh, there's possibilities and there's, I guess, a lot of ways to skin a cat when you live in enough places. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it was very entertaining and very intriguing. Uh, once again, you can find uh, his work on Amazon. So look for Anti-Gravity, the Wonder World series, Memories of Ebeneden, and all the others that are there, uh, as well as uh, the new stuff in the Peter Durant series. Uh, is that also available on Amazon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, find that stuff there. Support somebody that uh, really has been working hard at his craft and has certainly made some stuff that is well worth reading. Uh, so get in there and do it. And, uh, Bobby, thanks again for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Derek. All right, man. Take care, and uh, we're going to leave you all with a little bit of Robinson Treacher. One more soul, and you've been listening to Deep Orbit Studio Presents. Take care, everybody. Mm. I love that because I believe very strongly in faith. Without a doubt. And keeping your thoughts on what you want and allowing the universe to provide. Well, we could have a long conversation about that. I, I agree with you fully. Yeah. I agree with you. Okay. Well, it's called great. One More Soul. Great. You're one more soul that I'll never find. You're one more soul I need. I lost my baby down on the county line where the rivers. On why oh so deep So many times I felt I I fell behind With no reason inside For me to sleep and If I lie awake in bed 
to reach you if I lie awake in bed or will I receive you cause you're one more song that I never find you're one more song I Years slipped on by And I fell Further on Deeper Despair No sympathy I convinced myself That I'd be Better off If I cast these living chains Off of me If I lie awake in bed to reach you, if I lie awake in bed, well, I'll receive you. Cause you're one more soul that I'll never find. You're one more soul I. came a day in which I had had enough I bent down to the ground and cried so low down came a voice from somewhere on up above it said boy unless you rise you never know that when you Absolutely mesmerizing. I appreciate really. that. Thank you, sir. Yeah.